0: You may be seated this morning as we are in our communion service. Today we celebrate communion and we have this wonderful opportunity to come to Christ knowing that our sins are wiped away. And so I want to set the tone at the end of our message, at the end of this proclamation, we will be celebrating communion together and so you will be invited to join us in that. The service has not ended at the end of the sermon, but I'm just prepping you for what's about to happen. But I want you to turn with me to John as we continue on our study in the book of John, chapter 5. And by way of summary, Jesus has called to the stand or to the witness stand two previous witnesses, and if you've been taking notes you've been able to identify them, one, as God the Father who witnesses to Christ, and two, John the Baptist who also witnessed to Christ. What these two witnesses have taught us up until this point is that the Father is the power behind the message of Jesus Christ. And two, that those who testify should testify or witness in the model or in the example of John the Baptist, who first and foremost had integrity. Secondly, he pointed people to Christ and away from himself. He didn't receive the glory. And thirdly, he did it with courage. We saw last week that John the Baptist was beheaded. His head was taken off. Because of the courage he had to speak about Jesus Christ. Now this is important because as we sit here, the world is falling apart. As we sit here, all of our surroundings are in chaos. And so what is the church to do? Well, the church is to do one thing and one thing well. It is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is only in that gospel that those outside of the church will find life. You know, as well as I do, that there is many tries or many attempts to fulfill the need of every person's soul. Some find it in money, some find it in sex, some find it in drugs, some find it in alcohol, some find it in women, some find it in men. There's many attempts to satisfy the needs and the deep longings for our soul. As the writer of Ecclesiastes once said, we have eternity in our hearts. And it's very difficult to satisfy eternity when we are confronted with temporal things or objects. So as the world looks for a savior, as the world looks for a redeemer, as the world looks for something to hold on to, To satisfy their deep longings, the church has one message. Nothing will satisfy and nothing will take away sin other than the blood of Jesus. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that's one thing that we have to remind ourselves consistently of. And that's why we do this on a consistent basis. Although we would love to do this weekly, we do this on a monthly basis so that we are fully aware and remember that Christ accomplished something that we could never do. That's why the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, he says, By his wounds we have been healed. Now what does that mean? The the healing here isn't necessarily or merely a physical healing. What Isaiah the prophet points to is that the Redeemer, the one, the Messiah, the chosen one, will, by his wounds, heal us from our sin. We have a sin problem, and it can only be redeemed or removed or remediated by the perfect blood of Jesus. That's why we sang Nothing but the blood of Jesus. To the new person or to the person that has not been involved in Christianity for a while, that sounds a little off. You may leave here, if you're brand new for the first time, you may leave here and then tell your friends, hey man, I went to a place and they were singing about blood. It's kind of gory. It's kind of interesting. But it's not the fact of the physical blood that we embellish or Enjoy. It's the power behind it that it needed to be shed in order to wipe away our sins. And so the last two witnesses will testify accordingly. Jesus calls in God. Jesus calls in John the Baptist as the human witness. And in verse 36 and on, if you go with me to chapter 5 of John, In verse 36, Jesus points to another witness, and he says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So here Jesus is pulling at the front his work. The miraculous works of Jesus Christ, especially when we look at the Lord's table. So these miraculous works by Jesus express compassion, but their main purpose was to serve as signs of a divine power and glory. That's why he references the person that sends him. See, what the writer of Hebrews states is very important here. Where he says in chapter 2 of Hebrews, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Therefore, the miracles of Jesus were signs. I want you to get that clear. It's a sign. What Jesus did was a sign. And that sign pointed to his authority and message. When you're married, you have the sign of marriage. And how can people identify your marriage? When they look at the wedding ring. It's a sign of a commitment and a covenant. And so what Jesus does isn't an end in itself, but they are signs. Reminding people that the person that can raise the dead, the person that can heal the blind, the person that can heal the sick, has authority to live a perfect life in your place, in my place, in order to forgive us from our sin. You have to remember that God demanded a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished lamb in the Old Testament. There was no, new, there was no perfect sacrifice in the New Testament. No one could fulfill that perfect sacrifice other than Jesus Christ. So these signs point us to his authority. That's why Nicodemus, when we remember what we read in John chapter 3, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus? As the spectator first, but because he saw what he did. And Nicodemus therefore said, Man, no one can do what you do. You must be from God. And so that's why Nicodemus came. Because Jesus pointed to the sign that he was from God and had the power to heal. Now I'm going to take a little, uh, uh, go on a little tangent here or take an aside for just a brief second. Because too often in our modern culture, we have in our modern society ever since the 19th or 18th century at its core, these faith healers, people that claim That they have healing powers and therefore use it for economic benefit. We see them all over television. And some call it Christian television, but it's really not Christian television. Big time faith healers in the charismatic movement that utilize the miraculous for self-aggrandizement. They are gatekeepers or they consider themselves gatekeepers gatekeepers of divine power, and they only release it for financial benefit. Their healing campaigns prop them up as the mighty ones, but we know, and the Bible calls them vile thieves and scammers. Their lifestyles point people away from Christ and the Father, and they shine the fame upon themselves. That's why when we see these faith healers all over television, it's their name that comes out on the screen. We know them by their name. When people go, they want to be healed by that person. They don't come to Christ. They want to be healed. And these faith healers, contrary to what Jesus does, Jesus points His healings and His signs to the Father, reminding everyone That he has what he has because it comes from the Father. And because it comes from the Father, it isn't a scam. It isn't some wannabe miracles. That's why Jesus doesn't just heal headaches. That's why Jesus doesn't heal backaches all, all the time. Jesus heals the blind. Jesus raises the dead to prove where he comes from. So that's why... In our modern day, ever since the 19th century, liberal scholars have sought to disprove all of Jesus' miraculous signs. Liberal scholars have come up with a very difficult uh, person in Jesus Christ. Something very difficult comes to the forefront here. What do we do with Jesus, the liberal scholar says. He is an obvious historical figure. There is even... Uh, people outside the Bible narrative mention Jesus. So what do we do with this person? And especially all his miraculous claims to divine power. In, in these accounts, the validity in modern, in modern scholars' minds of Jesus' biblical and miraculous accounts are doubtful. Some see them as delusions, or others, frauds. However, the Gospels were written during the lives of many eyewitnesses, which is what we've been talking about, people that testify about Jesus, who attested to every single miracle Jesus portrayed and did. For us to deny these claims would be to deny the Gospels themselves. It's interesting, a New Testament commentator, Richard Phillips, tells the story of Simon Greenleaf. Now, who is Simon Greenleaf? Simon Greenleaf is the founder of, one of the founders of Harvard Law School. How many of you have heard of Harvard Law School? How many of you want your kids to go to Harvard Law? So Harvard Law School, and he writes a three volume book called The Treaties on the Law of Evidence. And this three volume treatise is the foundation for legal practice, even in America, Today, so lawyers have to read this book. And he seeks seeks out to disprove Christianity by applying his rules of evidence to the four Gospels. But what happens to Simon Greenleaf? That as he tries to disprove the Gospels, he ends up accepting the claims of Christ and becoming a Christian himself. He was especially persuaded by the way in which the disciples proclaimed the entire ancient world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which they claimed eyewitnesses, even at the cost of their own lives. So Simon Greenleaf was like, this is, this can't be. Why would people give their lives for something that is fake? And so hear what Simon Greenleaf says. There's a brief quote, so bear with me as I read this, but I really want you to pay attention to what this Harvard Law founder says about Christianity. And he says this, and I quote, Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. The laws of every country were against the teachings of the disciples, The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revelings, bitter persecution, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith... They zealously did propagate, and all these miseries miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unflinching courage. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated, had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. End of quote. See what he realizes is that these eyewitnesses had evidence to support their claim. Because in most cases, many who did support their claims ended up dead. See, the first half of the Gospel of John is commonly known as the book of signs. We've studied this at the beginning when we started our journey in the Gospel of John. The first 12 to 13 chapters are signs that Jesus does to prove his identity. And they are recorded first from the turning of water into wine to the last one, which was the raising of Lazarus. Each miracle, therefore, confirms his deity and inspires faith in those who saw the signs. No one can claim that unbelief is justified by a lack of evidence. Ultimately, these signs point people to the one who enables Jesus to do so, which is the Father. So this is why it's important. When Christianity is on trial, in our 21st century culture, we say, well, we have no signs. We, the, the first century eyewitnesses, if you want to call them that, well, they, if Jesus really did what he said he did and the eyewitnesses uh, viewed this, then they might have more of a belief in that system. Or in that person. But what are we 21st century people supposed to do about Jesus when only a book that was written by humans, unperfect humans, as many uh, have have brought out and, and have put to the forefront? especially liberal scholars they they find a bunch of errors in the bible and they try to disprove it and disclaim it and when your kids go to university their their university professors will tell them yeah the bible you know you grew up in church but it's it's really just a literary book and it has a ton of mistakes and all your kids are going to be like oh really it has a bunch of mistakes and if they didn't pay attention in church then they're going to believe it and so when they graduate Uh, when they're 22 years old, they graduate and they end up abandoning the faith because it was founded upon a book that was flawed. That is not what we believe nor what we teach, but that is what liberal scholars do because there's no way to prove the signs. We didn't live in the first century and we can't time travel. So Jesus calls to the stage two more witnesses. As he did so in his miracles, and then the greatest miracle, maybe we didn't see or experience the raising of Lazarus as the first century people did, but what did we do, what did we experience from Jesus? What miracle do we experience from Jesus? Some people have claimed supernatural healing. Some people have claimed like a a, a miraculous event in their job and we don't deny these claims. It, It could happen. But the greatest miracle that we as Christians or as believers have is the fact that we have been turned from sinners to saints. The fact that we can stand before a holy, righteous God. That's a miracle in itself. The fact that God has turned you into a saint. I believe this, or, or, or think about this a little bit. You, and you know exactly what goes on in your mind. You know exactly what you think about. You know exactly what you meditate on day and night. You know exactly what you do when you are alone. No one else is watching. No one else can hear you. No one else can see you. And you are turned into a saint by the precious blood of Jesus. That's a miracle. I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for that miracle in my life. I grew up in church. I was in church five times a week. And and I grew into a moment of apathy. And I believe that I I was just uh, grandfathered into Christianity. My family may have thought I was a Christian. My dad prayed that I was a Christian. My mom desperately prayed every day for me. But I was not a Christian. I didn't really believe what I was taught. I was just a little bit scared of hell. It's Like, man, if if hell is real, man, I hate fire. And I don't want to burn. So I just really lived my life trying to avoid that. But I wasn't really a Christian. It isn't until God does the miraculous that changes those apathetic hearts, hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that accept the gospel. That's a miracle in itself. If you talk to some people here, if you talk to some of our leadership, if you talk to some of our pastors from gangbangers, bangers, as we used to call them, Drug dealers, bad gun carrying Latinos down in the hood in La Villita and on Pilson. That was them back twenty years ago. Point some of them were about to lose their marriage. Some of them were about to die physically. But Christ did the miraculous. And now you see them here, and they're, you're like, what? Man, you're a pastor? What? Dang, that's pretty cool. That's what God does heals marriages, heal their kids. And it's impressive what God does. So. We don't have a lack of evidence. The church is the evidence in, in and of itself because we are unperfect people that have been blessed by a perfect God and have been saved by a perfect God. That's why when people say, the church is full of hypocrites, yes, bro, yes. We're all hypocrites, man. We, we need to be perfected by Jesus every day of our lives. And so as the final witness, to the stand, Jesus calls up the fourth witness, and as he does so, he does it in a the, the 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 theme here shifts. He goes on the attack as he calls up the witness of number four. Scripture, remember number one witness, number one the. The Father, witness number two, John the Baptist, witness number three, the miraculous events of Jesus' life and his works, and witness number four, scripture itself. As a final witness, Jesus uses the scriptures as a prosecution. Moses is mentioned. Look at at verse 39 of chapter 5. Here, Jesus' words and his tone. He says, You Search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So this final section, Jesus shifts his, his defense into a prosecution by using the scriptures and Moses' words to prove his identity. Why did he use Moses? Well, Moses is the one that says in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a prophet will rise up from among them, pointing towards Jesus. But these words in Jesus' context go largely ignored. Why is Moses mentioned in these verses? Because Moses is thought of as being the patron saint of the Jewish people. On the road to Emmaus in, in Luke chapter 24, Moses and all the prophets, Jesus says, spoke concerning himself. So their very own Pentateuch was written by Moses and it speaks of Jesus. And so that's why Jesus says, your own main figure, Moses, spoke of me. And you still don't believe me. And you still don't believe in what I've done. So what Jesus does is use scripture as his witness first, but then ends up turning the tables and begins his prosecution. Now the hearers are on trial. Jesus has been on defense mode this entire time, but it's time to go to the offensive. The hearers failed to recognize the Father as the primary witness. It is His voice they have never heard, as we read in verse 37. What did Moses do? Moses heard the voice of God, as we read in Exodus 33. Jesus spoke, and He spoke of God. And so Jesus speaks the word of God, as we read in John chapter 3, and the Jews are unable to identify these words as God's voice. Therefore, they are not true followers of Moses, because they can't even hear the voice of God in Jesus. So Moses, instead of being their friend, or the person that they could seek refuge in, as they often thought and often claimed, Moses, Jesus says, becomes your accuser. The one that you seek help and the one that you feel is going to have your back, well, he won't have your back because he's accusing you since he has already spoken of me. Because they didn't believe in what he wrote, they become accused and Jesus puts them on trial. See, the scriptures are what point to the life giver. Scriptures aren't the end in themselves, but they show us who gives life. That's why there could be so many scholars and, and great, great minds that study the Bible and be so far from God because it becomes only a literal literary device. There's so many out there like that. Even in my seminary, there was so many people that I often thought like, wow, and they're not even Christian. There's some commentaries that I read that are amazing, but they're written by liberal scholars. And you're like, how does this happen? Because they think that by the study of Scripture, they'll find life, but they miss the main point. They miss Jesus, who is Jesus. Life. Friends, that's what we've always been asking. What do you do with Jesus? He's the one that gives life. So the true sense of what the reformers called sola scriptura is found solely in Christ. Jesus is all we need and the scriptures point us to him. And so therefore, we do study Scripture to find Jesus as the life giver. Those verses that we read were very, are very important, primarily because they show us the character of the hearers. Many of us can stand in their place. What prevented all these people to not believe in Christ? What prevented them? Well, Jesus sees very clearly one core issue. And the first, or the core issue here, as we read in verse 41 and 42, is pride. Say with me, pride. Pride prevented the hearers from accepting Christ. As Savior. That's why verse 41 says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And then from from verse 43 to 46, Jesus shows that they seek glory from others and not from God. The Jews desired the praise of many. Contrary to what Jesus said, he did not accept human testimony or human praise, especially when it came at the expense of praise from God. They had no real love for God because they loved themselves. They desired human praise instead of God's praise. And this prevented them from accepting the Scriptures. The character of the opponents are are clearly outlined. And in verse 44, Jesus says, I know you. Those are some scary words because those very words speak now into your life. And Jesus says to all of us standing here and sitting here, I know you. And the opponents, their character are highlighted. They do not see God. They do not hear God. They do not know God. And they do not love God. What they have is religion. And religion kills. Religion kills the sight because we can see the face of God in the face of Jesus as Paul teaches us. We can hear. Religion kills the spiritual hearing because we can hear God through his scripture. When we read it and meditate on it day and night, it kills their brain cells, spiritual brain capacity by not allowing them to know God, but we know God since Scripture is only studied and in the face of the life giver, which is Jesus Christ. And they kill the heart. Religion kills the heart because it prevents them from actually loving God. So to reject all these witnesses, therefore they have no love of God Or of themselves. And therefore they can't love others. Every opponent in Jesus' position has no excuse now. There isn't any excuse for you and for me. Today, what is your excuse for rejecting Jesus? Ah, well, I don't really believe God. Okay, that's the first witness. Ah, well, I really don't believe in that miraculous stuff that you're talking about. Uh, that Jesus did Uh, I I mean that's a little bit you know supernatural I'm not into sci-fi I'm you know uh, we could leave that and say okay what about the integrity of the human witnesses ah well Christians yeah I've met a lot of Christians in my life and they're all money hungry and they're all hypocrites they cheat on their wives and uh, they're, they're phony witnesses yeah but what about the true witnesses so you can reject them too okay well what about the scriptures Oh, well, you know that scriptures, we all know that they're 2,000 years old and written long ago. I mean, they, they can have flaws in them, of course. Obvious. There is not one perfect book. There is no excuse. The scriptures point us to the person that has eternal life. Now, what will you do? Even as friend, Man, I sat in church for 20-something years and I wasn't a Christian. I'm talking to you guys. What are you going to do with Jesus and what do you say he is? So I'm going to leave you with these words before we go into the communion service. The great author and thinker and writer and ex-atheist C.S. Lewis wrote these words. And I quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. He says, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who has merely, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with a patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. So friends, I leave you with these same words that C.S. Lewis left you with. What are you going to say about Jesus? I'm going to ask you to stand. And as the band gets ready, I want you to be fully aware of all the witnesses God has provided for your life so that you know who your Savior is. It's either God through Jesus Christ or it's something else, but it's not both. So as we prepare our hearts this evening or this morning, sorry, to receive the Lord's table, we do it because Christ has given His life for us to redeem us from our sin and give us before a holy God. So this isn't just some tradition, friends. This is the miracle of Christ's work in us.